Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. He has been trying the same things for months, always saying the U.S. is turning the corner to the virus disappearing, to a miracle cure, to a vaccine. But if you keep turning corners, you are actually going in circles. That's Gary Kasparov. He's perhaps the greatest chess player of all time. He's also a human rights activist, an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin, and the chairman of the Renew Democracy Initiative, a nonprofit that aims to defend liberal democracies around the world. In December of 2017, Gary joined me on Stay Tuned to discuss his unusual journey from world chess champion to Russian dissident to his life in the U.S. as an exile. We also spoke at length about Vladimir Putin and the tactics that he used to sow chaos around the globe. So as we approach this incredibly important presidential election, I wanted to have Gary back on the program to discuss the state of American democracy and what we can expect in the days and weeks to come. Gary Kasparov, welcome back to the show. Thanks for inviting me again, Treat. It's been a while. It's been almost three years since you've been on, and it feels like yesterday. Um, I don't know. I, the last uh, uh, few months, uh, they just changed my assessment of time because first time in many, many, not years, in many decades, I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, because COVID has changed uh, um, our lives. You know, this yeah. routine is no longer is no longer what it used to be. And uh, I never had uh, so much time spent on the ground without flying and traveling uh, since I was 12. So I had only two trips this year. Just two, back in the in the winter. Yeah, one was in the winter. It's just it's before before the pandemic. So I went to Europe uh, for uh, two conferences, uh, had uh, two appearances and keynotes, and uh, and then was another uh, trip in June when I uh, flew uh, from New York to Croatia with my family, and we're still staying here. And um, it's it's unlikely that we'll move again this year. This might make some people who are less accomplished than you feel better. But do you sometimes forget what day it is? Uh, yes, um, it's, uh, I, I, I know I have to say that, you know, my wife, you know, very often reminds me about appointments and, and about birthdays. It's, uh, and especially this year, it just, you know, it's, I discovered that for us, definitely for me, the time was always connected to, to a move. 
So it's 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 like time and space. They 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 were uh, sort of interdependent. And since we're no longer moving, you know, it's just it, 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 all the days. They're like you know, like all oh, it's one gray color. So it's just whether it's Wednesday, whether it's Thursday, whether it's Friday. I mean, who cares? Because we we're not going anywhere. Matter. So yes, one day just you know uh, is being replaced by another, and it's uh, and, and the calendar looks you know just it's it's all all the same. Are you playing chess during this time? Uh, yeah, I always do a little bit of chess, and now we spend so much time on on uh, online. And uh, I even played uh, uh, Fisher Random Chess, so-called 960 chess, with reshuffled pieces in the opening position. It's organized by St. Louis Chess Club, so faced uh, all the top players, including world champion. Did quite poorly, but uh, I just, you know, I was quite happy that I could practice uh, my chess and enjoy it. I'm, I'm an amateur now in chess, so, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I follow chess events and. Uh, it's 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 very difficult. I mean, not to look at the game of chess played played online while you are online almost all day. So, Gary, I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, October twenty eighth. Next week in the United States, there's an election. Are, are you are you familiar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you? I don't know because you said you know space and time, and you're forgetting things. Uh, no, there's no, an election is, next week. Are, are you are you aware of this? Yes, I am aware of this. Yes, and it's just it's yeah. It's if 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 there's a one event that everybody probably on the planet is aware of, it's elections <laughs> in the in the United States, and uh, I keep writing about it uh, on my social media. Yesterday, I was on uh, Anderson Cooper uh, on CNN. Uh, also, I did a few more interviews yesterday, other interviews. So, and um, everything, everything now just you know leads to the elections. Like all the all the roads leads to lead to Rome. So um, every every geopolitical issue you discuss, whether it's Russia, Belarus, uh, European Union, uh, uh, Asian affairs, uh, war in Nagorno Karabakh. Uh, it ends up with, okay, who will uh, be in charge after November 3rd? Yeah. So I'm, I want to remind you of something you said. You posted on social media the day before the election in 2016. I actually quote from you in my book. And you said the day before, quote, that nervous feeling you have about tomorrow, Americans, that's democracy working. Unpredictable elections. What a luxury. And then after Trump won in a surprise victory, you wrote, quote, Trump's election is greatest proof of democracy. You don't know the results in advance, end quote. Are you having that same feeling of uh, nervousness? Oh, yeah, nervousness, but it's uh, it's uh, it's a... It's a different reason now. So I, in 2016, I wanted to remind Americans about the um, the priceless value of free elections, and uh, and I think it's it was quite a disappointment that uh, nearly 100 million Americans decided not to vote. Actually, this number was greater than uh, and the, that the um, could be greater than than the votes uh, received by Hillary or by 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 Trump. So if uh, if no vote was um, uh, was a candidate, it would have won a uh, landslide victory uh, in 2016. Hopefully, this year's situation is changing. But uh, now I'm, I feel this nervousness because uh, what we saw over the last four years, and uh, you can definitely look at some of my tweets and comments made after Trump's uh, election, where I warn Americans about uh, Trumpism, not just Trump, but Trumpism as a political style threatening uh, the very foundation of American democracy. 
because as I warned Americans, uh, most of uh, most of these American institutions, actually all institutions, they have been relying on some kind of a code of honor, on traditions, on political customs. People did things because everybody did it before, and they didn't make certain things because nobody has done it before and it was considered to be inconceivable that somebody could break uh, this uh, uh, 200 plus year tradition. And Trump actually, you know, um, he was not shy to exploit uh, all these loopholes and and the the weaknesses of the system uh, because uh, his attitude was simple. Sue me. As long as it's not uh, unconstitutional, I can move forward. Sometimes it could be even unconstitutional, but as long as you can have this cover of uh, political protection provided to Trump by his uh, GOP enablers in the House first and uh, now in the Senate. So he felt that uh, he would be immune to to any um, serious political risk. And, And now my nervousness is based on fear that if 2016 election proved or confirmed Trump's political style, to start the 2020 elections, if, God forbid, Trump wins, could exonerate his political practices. And that might uh, might have uh, serious consequence for American democracy. And um, as much as I, you know, I appreciated the uh, surprising result of elections 2016 as a sign that democracy is alive, I'm afraid that Trump's victory might take this surprise from new elections to come. So you deal in probabilities and you're a very keen observer of American politics, even if you're in Croatia at the moment. Do you dare to make any prediction about next week? There are three options, as everybody says. It's just one, I think, highly unlikely that Trump wins, uh, not the popular vote, but Electoral College. I think it's highly unlikely and I don't think it's it's something that uh, we should be um, seriously afraid of. Though, of course, we remember 2016. We understand that the polls, the polls may not be as accurate as as we thought. But I think now this surprise surprise element has already had been incorporated in all these forecasts. So I think the two most likely outcomes: one is that Biden wins landslide, and by the end of that night of November 3rd to November 4th. Uh, will will know the outcome, especially if uh, he carries Arizona and Florida, two states, or at least one of them, two states where the absentee ballots and the early votes are being counted, as we speak, and uh, that's that's the best outcome. Another one is just it's close. Uh, Biden's still winning, but it's not as convincing, and his victory will will be hanging on the balance of the votes that will be counted later, as in many states where Republicans succeeded in blocking the the beginning of the counting process and until after uh, uh, polling stations closed. That's a likely outcome, and that's that's the most dangerous one. And uh, here we have uh, we have two actually two possible scenarios of this outcome. One is that uh, Trump claims that he won the elections. He will do it in just I believe he'll do it no matter what. So that's 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 the way he just he operates. But the question is whether, you know, um, the mood among his enablers in the Republican Party uh, will uh, be quite uh, dark and they will see the results of the Senate races, for instance. And they'll understand that um, supporting Trump and and backing him in this in these ludicrous claims, uh, it's 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 suicidal. And that's that's a good outcome. Or elections is close enough, like in 2016. 
or in year 2000. And, and Trump will have enough clouds with uh, um, Republicans in Senate and with the judges at different levels, uh, on top, of course, in Supreme Court. And then, then American democracy could be in real danger, if not in jeopardy, because it will be very difficult to actually find some reliable sources, reliable institutions that could, uh, could preserve the peaceful transit of power. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. So Gary, given the uphill battle for Trump in this election and his you know, general lack of popularity with people beyond his base, are you surprised at the tactics he's using to try to discredit mail-in voting? And is that what you would have expected from someone, say, in the Soviet Union? First of all, when we're talking about Trump, Preet, let's agree that the, the word surprise is just, you know, it's, 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 it's a piece of antique. You know? <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's, you should not be surprised of Trump doing everything to win because he doesn't care, you know, about the cost. And that's what happens with all uh, autocrats. At the end of the day, you know, he cares about the outcome. Winning is everything. Losing is a disaster. So how he wins, he doesn't care. Uh, if he has to reshuffle the deck and just, you know, get all the aces in his sleeve, fine. You know, it's just, I think people should stop, you know, be surprised. And they should stop, you know, saying, wow, no, it's never happened before. Does he understand how, how bad it looks? 
Uh, because this argument has been used for many years when I criticized Putin and warned about Putin's de- Putin's threat not only to Russia or Russia Russian neighbors, immediate neighbors, but to the rest of the world, including America. Oh, it looks bad. No, nothing looks bad for people like Putin or Trump if they believe they can win by using this bad technique or these bad moves or something dishonest to stay afloat and and uh, to win. Uh, so that's why I. Uh, I believe that Trump will use every trick in the book, and he will go beyond that. Our fantasy may not be sufficient to recognize all sorts of tricks and uh, dirty tricks that he will uh, employ to win the battle. And of course, dirty campaign is, is, is I mean, for him, it's just, it's, uh, it's like, like an oxygen. His problem this time is that he's uh, campaigning against the person that is not as vulnerable, is not as a looming target as Hillary Clinton was. And that definitely makes Trump so, so angry. So he had two, or probably more, unfortunate factors in this campaign. Uh, one, as I mentioned, his opponent is not viewed by a majority of Americans as someone who, uh, who is corrupt, uh, who is um, abrasive, condescending. So it's, it's, it doesn't work against Biden. And, uh, and second is, of course, uh, um, Trump's disastrous handling of COVID pandemics destroyed his gains as he thought in an economy that would be a decisive factor. That was his plan for his re-election. And, uh, you know, being pushed to the ropes, um, he's desperate and uh, and he's willing to say whatever. And of course, you know, if you're a thief, you know, you want to, to blame your, your opponent of, of stealing. And, and if you're corrupt, you want to blame, uh, blame your opponent of uh, being even more corrupt. But of course, all these stories, they are just not landing on Biden the same way they could land on Hillary Clinton four years ago. Right. So I guess it's true. Trump is capable of anything. And we shouldn't be surprised. I guess the question is, we'll go back in time in a moment, but as far as next week is concerned, when Trump pulls all these tricks and makes these statements about victory, even though he may not have won, what is the American media supposed to do, in fairness? Well, American media should uh, should uh, hold its ground. I mean, you just, you cannot, you know, uh, you cannot uh, uh, simply, you know, report it for the sake of reporting. That's one of the, one of the, Trump's advantages that uh, he he is playing this uh, press neutrality, so this objectivity, so the fairness, and and he's uh, um, he's always having having an upper hand because his lies and his uh, horrible statements are given um, in theory the same value as the as the very decent comments from the opposite side. I think it should be a very clear message from the mainstream media that as long as the votes are being counted. All Trump claims just you know, should be disregarded as an attempt to steal elections. He should be he should be viciously attacked. I think that uh, the Democrats could probably even go to the courts, uh, just you know, just to have an injunction on any any. It's it's more like you know a show, but it's very important to demonstrate to Americans that election is not over until all votes are being counted, and remind them that there is a chance that Republicans may try to claim the victory before. Every every vote cast by American um, citizen is counted, or to protract the agony, because I understand there's a five weeks period for election results to be certified, and if if the chaos rolls over, uh, there is a chance that uh, in some states uh, results may not be announced, and then it goes to legislation, and in some states Republicans could 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 hope to win elections by acclamation rather than uh, rather than by by counting votes. 
Do you think that over the four years of the Trump presidency, the American press has gotten better at dealing with him? My recollection is that at the start, there was a lot of just mindless repetition of what the president said. And there's still some of that, as you say. But more recently, there were mainstream press outlets who fact-checked the president, who used the word lie and lying, which there was a great debate about uh, in the first couple of years of the presidency. How do you rate the press in America in dealing with the shenanigans of Donald Trump over the course of the four years? Oh, uh, if you're asking about me rating the performance, I would say it's from it came from F to probably B minus. Oh, that's so not bad. It's, B minus. It's, that's very generous of you. It's, it's <laughs> no, look, no, it's it's uh, but four years and look at the damage that Trump caused to American democracy, to American alliances around the world, to American people. Uh, so and presence is doing better, but I think you now that's the, the great test will be on the night of November third. If the second uh, second uh, um, outcome that I described, you know, that's a relatively close election. Biden is winning. Well, understand he's winning, but it's it yet takes time to to count all the votes. And Trump is mobilizing his support, rallying his support uh, in all government branches. Yeah, that's that's that will be the time to actually to to show that it's not just uh, a media report, but it's. Uh, We'll need some kind of statesmanship, uh, the sense of citizenry, because we we even we haven't even spoken yet about the foreign help for Trump. Four years ago, he received this help from Putin in the form of um, brainwashing of American public or attacking some small pockets, uh, crucial pockets of voters in battleground states using the data that uh, was uh, acquired by Cambridge Analytica from Facebook. And uh, they picked up the correctly, actually, and I believe that was the, the, uh, the essence of Trump's collision with Russians. They correctly picked up these hotspots on, on the electoral map and it worked. This time, I don't think Putin is bothering even just to work with, with groups of, of voters. It will be a direct attack on election infrastructure, and uh, they will definitely help uh, Trump to sort his of discord and spread chaos by simply, you know, uh, hacking the counting infrastructure online. And, uh, and any, any uh, sign of chaos will help Trump because it will create more uncertainty, and uh, naturally uncertainty is what Trump needs if he is losing. So uh, that's why press will have to take a stand, and they will have to um, not just inform American public, but to educate American public and to warn them about all these dangers and to defend democracy. It, that's That might be the challenge that every, Amer- every media outlet, American outlet, will be um, facing five days from now. Do you think that it is Putin's intention to directly favor Trump or merely to sow chaos, or are those two things similar? Uh, Putin's intention is to survive, and his survival depends on his ability to spread chaos internationally because uh, Russian economy is in, is in free fall, uh, pandemics numbers are horrible, even official numbers are not good, but uh, speaking to to people um, back there in Russia or reading the uh, Russian, uh, Russian internet, you can understand that Russia is in terrible shape. Russian healthcare system has been ruined during 20 years of Putin's rule. So Putin needs foreign policy um, call it adventure. So he needs um, to continue his aggressive foreign policy. And uh, um, uh, his only chance to continue it uh, and to stay afloat, not to be defeated decisively, is to have friendly administration, friendly president. 
even without discussing reasons why Trump uh, was always so friendly to Putin as to many other dictators, Putin knows that with Biden in the Oval Office, the situation will change quite dramatically. And America will be back at the world stage as a leader of the free world. And with American, with American-led coalition that will include European nations that are also lost their patience with Putin's aggressive acts uh, and interference in their affairs, Putin will not be will not be able to achieve his foreign policy goals. So Trump's victory for Putin is the best chance to survive. So uh, and I think he will be he will be helping Trump with every resource that he can he can mobilize and unfortunately i have to say that uh, putin is 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 not shy to use these resources that's true can we go back to something you said a second ago the issue of of why it is that trump is so kind rhetorically about putin never criticizes him do you have an explanation for that do you think there might come a time where we will hear some revelations about why that is oh i sincerely hope so i think it's very important for us to understand so what is the essence of this Trump-Putin friendly relations? We know Trump is friendly to all dictators because he simply envies them. It's it's his his autocratic mentality. Uh, is just it's is eager to implement the same techniques of governance as being used by Putin, Chinese uh, Communist Party, North Korean dictator Erdogan. Right, you but name it. What's very odd about that, Gary, is he could go about his business and privately. Um, admire them and try to emulate them. But I don't see how it is in his you know, domestic political interest to be so friendly in his rhetoric to these dictators. Or is there some basis on which you think that maybe even his base likes that? Uh, I don't know about his base, but but he doesn't care. I think it's his nature. So he's somehow he's, uh, he's very frank in his admiration of dictators. So he, does, he doesn't believe he has to hide it. That's, that's how he lived his life. So it always works for him. So he's, you know, he's he's telling you exactly what he's going to do. So it's, you know, he's going to tell you that I'm going to steal. I'm going to uh, benefit from my positions. For him, the moment he's sitting uh, at the same table with with dictators, uh, with authoritarian leaders, he feels much better, and he cannot hide it. But still, I would separate Putin from the pack. While he could be friendly with Erdogan's of this world, or with uh, Xi Jinping's or Kim Jong-un's, but the relations with Putin. I think they are fundamentally different. And we saw it at many occasions, especially one in Helsinki, uh, when at the press conference, um, Trump, who is, I don't know, he's towering Putin, you know, he's, 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 he's so much taller. But it seemed to me that Putin looked at him, you know, um, as a giant looks at a dwarf. Uh, I um, met enough KGB officers in my life, and I know the way this, this green that they, uh, on their face when they look at their assets. For some reasons, Putin, Putin believes Trump is his asset. We'll find out more, you know, when uh, when uh, um, Trump is out of the office, and we'll know more about his taxes and about you know who really owns Trump's empire. So, and all these Trump financial dealings will become public, hopefully one day. And I have no doubt that we'll see plenty of uh, Russian uh, traces in uh, Trump's dealings. But now, um, without going too far, so it's very clear to me that uh, Trump cannot escape his dependence on Putin, and and that's why he tried desperately to minimize the negative effects of American sanctions. Though Trump says, "Oh, look, my administration did this." No, no, no. These sanctions happened not because of Trump, but 
despite of Trump, uh, because uh, sanctions imposed by the Senate had, I think, 97% support. Since uh, Republicans who are with Trump on domestic affairs, internationally, they try to, to keep distance. And while Democrats now support the sanctions, it's, it's almost unanimous. So Trump knew that he couldn't escape it, but he did absolutely everything in his power to downgrade the effect of the sanctions. And also following, you know, just following Putin's words and, and uh, Russian propaganda, they are all behind Trump. It's as, as much as they were for Trump four years ago. But four years ago, they didn't expect Trump to win, frankly speaking. I think the expectations were that Trump could uh, spread chaos. He could uh, badly damage Hillary Clinton, who they expected to be the next president. And maybe the Trump's campaign against Hillary would make her weak and more uh, open to uh, deals with Russia, just not to compromise her um, international position. But this time, it's not just expecting Trump to, to spread chaos. They, they want him to win. I'm not surprised finding out that uh, the whole story spread by Giuliani uh, has been fabricated by Russian intelligence. And you don't think, just to repeat, that Trump's general admiration for autocrats is sufficient explanation for his conduct and behavior towards Putin? No, I think it's not enough because Putin, in my view, is separate from that pack. The way Trump talks to Putin, the way Trump deals with Russia and with Putin's personal interest, it's quite different from uh, the way Trump has been dealing with other uh, autocrats. And that's why I think there's something more there. It's, it's, more, uh, it's more nefarious. There are more secrets. There are the secrets that hopefully will be revealed when Trump is out of the office. Yesterday, it was reported that Putin ordered a national mask mandate because coronavirus cases were spiking. And then you tweeted the following, quote, perhaps this is what will convince Trumpists that Putin really is a bad guy, or maybe it will convince them to wear masks. Good in either case. <laughs> <laughs> so is Trump wondering now my friend and mentor Vladimir Putin has issued a nationwide mask mandate? What do I do? Look, the national mask mandate in Russia is the is a demonstration of utter failure of Putin's regime to deal with pandemics. As you remember, they have been uh, trumpeting their successes at early early stage of the virus, saying it's just it was minor and Russian healthcare system uh, was on top of that. Then they had to accept, you know, that's the in some mega policies mainly in Moscow, there were problems. But in summer, they were back to, the, to their un, unfounded optimism. And uh, now they are dealing with this uh, uh, unmitigated disaster. And uh, even official numbers are terrible. And uh, all stories about vaccine, it's just, you know, it's a miracle cure, though they have officially, officially claimed that they had vaccine, but they they know that it's it's not, it's not it's not working, and um, while Putin, you know, now declared this national white mask mandate, uh, he's hiding. He has been hiding since the very beginning of the pandemics, and that's the best uh, best uh, um, demonstration of the real situation on the ground in Russia, how bad it is, and uh, so how helpless are Russian authorities by trying to not to eradicate it, but to to contain its spread. You comment on the autocratic playbook. We didn't have occasion to speak back in January or February. But, but if we had, and I had asked you the question, let's suppose this pandemic becomes a very big deal and lots of people are at risk and lots of people begin dying. What is your prediction as to how Donald Trump, who believes more in PR than in leadership, 
how would he conduct himself in the face of science, in the face of actual reports of deaths? Did he follow through and do what you would have predicted or something different? No, um, there's nothing surprising about Trump's uh, contempt for science because science is a solid knowledge. Science is something that cannot be changed tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. And Trump's uh, algorithm is, uh, is is exactly the opposite. Trump uh, uh, believes that you know the, the the true story is what he's telling today, and the fact is that he's he is met by an opponent in this case in case COVID that cannot be talked away, cannot be um, cannot be destroyed through a, a pointed pointed PR campaign made him puzzled and then furious and uh, and he's trying to pretend that it's it's all you know it's all just you know bad luck it's it's going to to disappear next day he has been trying the same things for months always saying the us is turning the corner to the virus disappearing to a miracle cure to a vaccine but if you keep turning corners you are actually going in circles but that's very profound. If you keep turning corners, you're going in circles. That's that's what's happening with Trump. That it always worked, you know, with everything else, and that's why it's that's why Trump is Trump is so now so angry. Uh, he's 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 uh, enraged because his traditional tactics that work so well now actually backfiring both with COVID and with Joe Biden as his opponent. Well, are they really backfiring? I mean, the example you just give reminds me of something else he does, and seems to get away with. The number of times he said, I have a health plan, it's coming out in two weeks. <laughs> That's been going on for months and months and months. And then two weeks go by and some reporter says, what happens is, oh, it's coming in two weeks. And yet he has a persistent base of support. It never leaves him. Yes, but it's the, um, now we, we're not discussing healthcare. We're talking about Trump's uh, lock on his uh, support, whether it's 30, 35%, but it's considerable portion of American population. Trump is not, you know, uh, the reason these people believe in Trump. I think Trump is a symptom that they, it's the American policy, politics has been um, shifted from competitive democracy into tribal fights. Trump embodies, um, I want to say, the right uh, of American politics. Though I think Trump is, he's now on, on the right side, but I'm afraid that you can equally have Trump on the far left. Trump embodies the, like a dream politician for radicals on, on either side, someone who could actually move forward with the agenda, paying no respect and and uh, um, ignoring the rationale and uh, and playing with some kind of religious feelings. Not necessarily religious, you know, as 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 a faith, but it's just it's a belief that you know our side is always right. But we usually don't think of radicals being forty percent of the population, right? He has a persistent base of that number. You said the following as a theory a few weeks ago, as to the persistence of the support, which I thought was interesting. You said, quote, we marvel at the steady 40% Trump support, despite his cascade of failures and scandals. And it's not just the people are locked in. And then you write, they relish the damage itself. They think it's hurting people they don't like more than it hurts them. Divisive and toxic, i.e. Trumpism. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. But I would divide this 40% in two groups. I think there is a smaller group the lousy group. This is the true radicals. That's they want, you know, just the country to move their direction at any cost. Make it 10, 15 percent. So that's it's the less than one third of this 40 percent. But the rest is the it's the traditional Republicans. They are just, you know, they're enraged by other things. And also they 
they move with the current. So they just look at this noisy group and uh, and they look at the other side and uh, somehow they are convinced that uh, the opposition, the opposite numbers on the democratic side, they are absolutely evil. And uh, and that's, that creates this synergy. And, and that's why this 40% just behind Trump. And as I say, probably one third, you know, it's just true believers, while the rest, uh, it's just those who are, Going with this tide, and uh, naturally the um, the uh, right wing media is playing with many fears that have been raised by raised throughout this protest and of course looting and unrest in the last uh, several months, and uh, it works. Again, it's it's about tribalism. It's about tribalism, and and um, we, all, we all know well that we can find many people on the other side, on the left side, that are equally equally distrustful are hateful about the opposition from the right. And that's that's that what benefits Trump. The very the very climate that has been created, you know, so that's 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 what Trump strives. And that's why it's very important for us to move away from that. Because even if we beat Trump, it's not enough. We have to beat Trumpism as a philosophy, as the um, way of governing the country and rallying uh, rallying uh, his supporters. Is it a philosophy? Or just a way of being. Uh, it's the yeah, maybe philosophy is 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 giving it too much credit, even though exactly, it's exactly giving too much credit. But somehow it's a political philosophy because it's it's a very um, savvy way of using the political landscape. Right. And, I guess um, I guess nihilism is a philosophy, is it not? Yeah, it's a nihilism is philosophy. Yes, exactly. But it's it's Trumpism is aiming at the very foundation of American democracy that was based on on traditions, uh, and these traditions were deeply rooted in the documents designed by founding fathers. But of course, they couldn't foresee everything by the end of, at the end of the 18th century. It, those documents cannot be used as a holy scripture to to answer every question. That's why it's uh, it's very dangerous just to hear these arguments today, you know, from some originalists. Oh, it's not uh, unconstitutional. Of course, it's not unconstitutional because so many things are unconstitutional. <laughs> the Constitution couldn't uh, answer every question. But it's if we look at the spirit of the law, uh, definitely the, the spirit of the of the law and the spirit of American democracy has been in great danger. And uh, every day Trump is is on campaign trail, and if. If God forbid he stays, you know, uh, in the office for four more years, the spirit could could be gone. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I want to talk a little bit more about the difference between Trump and Trumpism. Because you pointed something out about Trump. And I don't know if it's a feature of the quote-unquote philosophy or just about him that's unique. There are other people who are demagogues or other people who aspire to be autocrats who trample on institutions and norms and everything else. The difference with Trump, as you point out, is he tells you exactly what he's going to do. He says, I'm going to steal. He says, I'm going to fire people. He says he's going to do all these things. I'll give you an example that was brought back to, to attention in the last week when he walked out on that interview with Leslie Stahl at CBS. He said to Leslie Stahl four or five years ago, he said to her, you know why I do it? Meaning attack the press. He said, I do it to discredit you all 
and demean you all. So when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. So he gives you the playbook. There's not a lot of um, hide the the tactics here. Do you think in the future, someone who wants to walk in the footsteps of Donald Trump will be like that? It seems to me that it's a unique thing in a politician to tell you he wants to obstruct as he's trying to obstruct. And these other people who may follow in his footsteps, I think may have some of the other tendencies he has. But but how odd is it that he forecasts all of it in advance? Is that unique or not? Because I don't think Putin does that, does he? No, but yes, but Putin Putin rules uh, uh, Russia. It's a very different country. Uh, Trump Trump uh, um, had the most difficult task of all because he has been trying to impose this autocratic uh, style and methods in the country that uh, enjoyed uh, democracy for nearly 250 years. The country that's, that cherishes uh, individual freedoms and, and uh, was built, the institutions of this country, uh, had been built on the idea of uh, separation of powers, of checks and balances. So, and Trump recognized that the way to, to accomplish it is to um, make, his, make him immune to uh, free press. And that's why, you know, he um, he attacked free press and he keeps attacking free press because as long as he can um, uh, split, the, split the country, as long as he can have us versus them, uh, he can succeed in uh, pushing against uh, um, the fundamental ideas behind American democracy. But while Trump is unique, since we've never seen any Trump-like politician before, he's also a symptom because Trump would have never succeeded in 2016 if uh, conditions were not ripe. Because the country already, you know, had this uh, a very you know, bitter partisanship. And um, we all understand that uh, nominating Hillary Clinton in 2016, that definitely helped Trump immensely. I, I have no doubt that Joe Biden four years ago would have won handily against Trump. So Trump needed someone who had uh, a negative rating of nearly 55% or 60% and to win elections while his negative rating was even higher. What are some ways you deal with this? And I guess we'll have a better idea of who we're going to be dealing with in the future. You, were, you and I, before we started taping, were discussing a piece by Nicholas Kristof, where he talks about the power of humor in resisting autocrats. He writes, among other things, quote, shaking one's fist at a leader doesn't win people over as much as making that leader a laughingstock, end quote. And then he gives examples from other protest movements around the world. What do you, what do you make of that idea that in some ways you can resist autocratic movements and leaders with humor? Uh, look, you're asking someone who was born and raised in the Soviet Union. So we, we knew that humor, we call it kitchen humor because nobody could talk about it publicly on the streets. This humor was our only way to reflect the awful reality of communist Russia. So we, this, the idea that humor is, is something that helps us to deal with this reality and to exchange our views, people like me, we, we were fed with mother's milk. That's why, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I think it's all these comments are oversimplistic because Americans are learning about this, this, this uh, humor to become part of the political campaign, but it's still a different kind of humor because it's it's on television. You can have all these shows and Saturday uh, live show, for instance, or Bill Maher, or just you know many others. You know this is this is you name them. This is this its name of its their name is Legion on American TV on radio uh, on. 
online, of course. But it's I'm talking about more subtle kind of humor that is just you know it's uh, it's um, points at at the very core problem of of the regime. You know, it's the I mean I just I can recall you know the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jokes in the Soviet Union. One of them is just, for instance, in in the school, you know, this this is or in the college, they're debating, you know, why Napoleon failed to return to power in 1815, and the answer is he failed because he didn't have newspaper Pravda. If he had a Pravda newspaper, nobody would have learned that he lost the battle at Waterloo. <laughs> so this is again, it's just we already knew that you know the propaganda could do a good job by brainwashing people, and it's not now with social media it could uh, create miracles. This is, you know, one of the one of the biggest issues. How we find a way to uh, use our technology, the technology invented in the free world, the technology that helps us to communicate and just to exchange information and to do many great things. How we can use this technology to advance democracy and not democracy to be challenged and destroyed by undemocratic forces that are quite um, uh, handy with using social media to undermine our democratic freedom. Well, I'm not sure how you do that. I mean, technology, one form of new technology is social media, Facebook, Twitter. And those platforms are right in the crosshairs of the debate where I think people of good faith thought that those outlets would help a lot of people, not just in America, but around the world to engage in the, in the free exchange of ideas and for democratic impulses to flourish. And we see the opposite, right? Because you can sow so much mistruth if they're not monitored. You think it's possible to fix that? Look, I think it's possible, but we have to acknowledge the problem first. And it's just we're, we're very slow of acknowledging it. In technology, you have a Moore's law. And on the side of bureaucracy, state institutions, you have a Parkinson law. <laughs> Wait, Moore's, Moore's law, if I recall correctly, is the processing doubled, power yes. of a chip exactly. doubles every exactly. 18 months? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, exactly. You can call this Moore's law for technology. So you, you have more and more technology that helps us to communicate with faster, you know, more effectively. But it creates, you know, it creates a very different space. And people expect governments to respond also quickly. But the government's response is, is based on Parkinson law. So you have more and more bureaucracy layers to respond to new problems. So this, those are just the two, two opposite trends. And that's why people are losing their faith in government's ability to deal with these problems. And uh, obviously, it opens, opens doors for populists who are saying, oh, the, the old form of government is just you know, obsolete. It's just it's not working. You know, forget about it. So uh, let's find the direct communication. So that's, that's what Trump accomplished with his Twitter. Oh, just, you know, I, I talk to you guys. So it's the we we don't need these old uh, institutions of representative democracy because they're not they're no longer uh, capable of meeting your your needs and demands on time. A couple of weeks ago, I had my article in the Economist, and I talked about these challenges. And I think it's a very important conversation, maybe the most important one we should have after November third, of course. How can we mobilize new technology? to help us adjusting the traditional democratic institutions built uh, on the documents designed by founding fathers to the challenges of the 21st century. And one of the ideas that I, I fancy is to look for new coalitions that one can create at the local level. Because we know that people are losing their radicalism if you downgrade the issues from geopolitics to nationwide political agenda and then to, to local 
people who live in the same neighborhood, they are more likely to open for for negotiations, for, for looking for consensus and uh, being less radical, even if they have uh, uh, different views about American foreign policy. And uh, it's a long and painful process. Unfortunately, no decision can satisfy people who are looking for immediate answers. But that's, I believe, the way to go. We have to defuse the bomb of radicalism, these minefields that benefit Trump and, and his potential uh, followers. Is the opposite of radicalism centrism? Centrism sounds a bit dull. And it, I was going to say that. I mean, it's part yeah. of the problem in, in, in modern society where we have social media and video games and constant need of stimulation. Is the main problem not one of ideology with centrism, but of dullness? Yeah, but it says why it's dullness. You know, it's you can make it more exciting with new challenges. I think it's not just about the dullness of centrism. I think it's about our loss of a future target. So what's the what do we desire? So what's the what do we expect to achieve? It's just humanity always moved forward by having great goals, you know, exploration, you know, the science, breakthrough innovations. American nation that celebrated 51 years ago, uh the landing on the moon last year you know, was ecstatic about a uh, new iPhone, but it's the, but, uh, <laughs> but Apollo, Apollo 11 is not iPhone 11. It's very important for us to recover this spirit of innovations and exploration. So that's just this, we need to move the nation and the world that could follow to, so to new heights or to new depths, if we're talking about exploration of the oceans. But we have Elon Musk, but is. Uh, virtually alone in just doing these great things. And I and I think that's the way to energize people. And uh, as long as we don't have it, so people are just, uh, they're consumed with, their, with, with this routine. And it's so easy now to be hijacked by Trumps of this world because they just, um, they attack the center. They attack the, the mainstream politics as being dull and uh, boring and uh, unattractive. And also at the time of social media, the numbers in the middle, and they're still dominant. I still believe the more Americans are just there comfortable with being in the middle. But when you have 10, 15% on both sides using social media and being so vocal, aggressive, and rallying uh, relatively small but aggressive and noisy crowds behind them, it creates an illusion that they, they represent the country. They do not. Right. So I have to ask you this before we go. Contemplate a Trump victory whether it's close or not. What, what does that mean for America? Paint the picture. And what does it mean for America's place in the world if Trump is president for another four years? I note the long uh, pause. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a long pause. Uh, did you say Trump president for four more years? I did. Uh, okay. I, I'm not sure it's four more years because there are younger Trumps. So it might be uh, more than four years of President Trump, because uh, in the next four years, Trump will succeed in, in ruining the checks and balances system in the United States. He will take full control of GOP, of course. That's a, it will be Trump's party. Forget about Lincoln, uh, Reagan, and other great Republican presidents. And uh, having this machine behind him, he will uh, be able to move American politics, uh, political life away from traditional um, democratic um, competition. As we saw during his first four years, he will be very consistent in replacing key members of U.S. agencies. Oh, yeah. 
the FBI director, the CIA director are already reportedly on the chopping block. Right? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. It's just it's the it's it's not enough to be neutral. It will be only Trump loyalists. You remember how how many people on the GOP side said, oh, OK, Trump, he's a novice, just, you know, he may be too, you know, too impulsive. But look, we have uh, General McMaster, General Mattis, we have General Kelly. They will be able to contain Trump's negative energy. So where are these guys? And the way Trump pushed for Amy Barrett and um, the way the Republicans accommodated him tells you that uh, he will not be shy to pack all branches of government with his loyalists. And I think, by the way, that was a big problem, a big mistake by Democrats, the way they handled Kavanaugh and, and Barrett. They just, you know, they talked about everything, about sexual scandal, about uh, health care and about Roe versus Wade. It's important. But the problem with these two, they're Trump's loyalists and they didn't even hide it. It's the first time we, in my memory, we had the Supreme Court judges that, that were not shy of playing in the hands of the president who appointed them. The first thing Amy Barrett did, you know, she participated in Trump's rally. Oh, it's accidental, but it's a fact. So um, I think that the next four years could be, a, I don't want to say graveyard of American democracy, but American democracy will have to do so much to survive. And I think it's, it's the divide of American society will be widened. Trump will enjoy it. And uh, I think it might lead to dramatic conflicts between blue states and Trump's administration. As for American uh, America's status in the world, it will be further downgraded. America will, will no longer play a role because the way America is acting now, it's uh, not typical because Trump's interest very often is replacing American interest. And in the next four years, it will be a banana republic with nuclear weapon and massive economy. But uh, Trump's interest will um, be a dominant factor of U.S. US foreign politics. And uh, American allies in Europe will be definitely looking for, uh, for the other directions to survive in this world. So I feel very uncomfortable by, by spending the last minutes of our conversation uh, no, painting, well, I'm gonna... painting, painting this, <laughs> this, this dystopian future. <laughs> just, well, well I'm going to make you feel better because, because my next question is, is the reverse. Now paint the picture of what happens, how much damage can be undone if Biden wins. And, and let's assume for this hypothetical, to make you feel better, that he wins by a large margin. It will be important because it's not about beating Trump, as I already said, but beating Trumpism. Trumpism as, let's not argue about what philosophy, beaten convincingly. So hopefully it will help America to revive its normal political competition. And uh, it might have a good effect with uh, what's left of the Republican Party. My belief is that the real job begins on the next day, because it's not just about Trump-Biden elections. It's not about Biden winning and doing many things that will, will help us to reverse the negative effect of Trump's actions. Naturally, it will, it will be felt immediately in foreign politics. American allies will be uh, reassured that America is there and America is back to normalcy. But it's also important to understand how we can manage the extremist influence in both major political parties. And I think that it will lead us to a gradual reform of the current political system because we already know that many 
Republicans, many traditional conservatives, they departed the Republican Party and now actively supporting Biden. And I think these people will be looking for, for a new home. There might be eventually a conflict within Democratic Party because I can hardly imagine what brings together modern Democrats like Joe Biden, for instance, and uh, Bernie Sanders uh, followers. Many of them are very reluctant, by the way, to vote for Biden even today. So um, it's a hard work. It's not going to happen overnight. I think it's very important to remember that uh, voting for Biden on November 3rd or earlier and uh, even celebrating his victory should not make us complacent. Using the chess at chess analogy. So if your king is under a threat of being mated in two moves, you have to worry about the safety of the king. You have to protect it because otherwise the game is over. And that's for me could be um, a metaphor of Trump's victory. But even if you are if you are succeeding in defending your king, you still have to make sure that the in the long run, in the end game, you can win the game. And it means that you have to think about more important factors, uh, positional factors like a pawn structure, activity of your pieces, control of the center, and so on. That's what uh, will be in our agenda after November 3rd if, as we expect, common sense and historical optimism will win. Gary Kasparov, thanks again for joining us. I hope to talk to you on the other side of the election. Yeah, absolutely. I will be delighted. So, And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk uh, while raising... Uh, Raising the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Thank you, please. Okay, bye-bye. My conversation with Gary Kasparov continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So, folks, here we are. The election is not upon us. The end of the election is upon us. And I don't have anything particularly profound to say this last opportunity to speak to all of you before the November 3rd election day. Mostly, I just want to commiserate, maybe tell you how I'm feeling. Um, I'm anxious, like a lot of you are. Last night at about 1130, I posted a simple tweet asking, you guys hanging in there? And I got thousands of responses. The tweet has been viewed over a million times, which to me kind of says it all. If you're feeling anxious, you're feeling stressed out, you're feeling concerned, you don't know what the future holds, you're not alone. Part of my living is trying to be balanced and calm and as neutral as possible. And I don't have many of those feelings at this moment. I'm as nervous and anxious as the rest of you, given what's at stake in this election. And by the way, the interview you just heard with Gary Kasparov has not made me more calm, as he points out very eloquently what the stakes are if Donald Trump is reelected. So it's an important election more so than I can say in a Twitter feed, more so than I can say at the end of a podcast. I remember the last time voting in an election that I thought was incredibly important and perhaps transformative, and that was in 2008. And my family and I were living in Bethesda, Maryland at the time. And although my kids were too young to vote, far too young to vote, they came with us. We wanted them to see what voting was like. I think I've mentioned this before. And we went in, stood in line, voted for the first black president. And I remember there was a feeling of lightness and, and joy in casting that vote. And I remember saying to my daughter, who at the time was seven, that you know it didn't matter to me who she voted for in the future, but when she was of age to be able to cast a ballot, the important thing was that she vote. And she said to me, because she was precocious, she said, Daddy, do I have to vote for a Democrat? And I said, no, you don't. You can vote for whoever you want, just as long as you vote. Fast forward to this past weekend, where early voting for the first time was available in New York State. 
And my daughter, now 19, has become fairly politically active herself. She happens to be interning for a grassroots political organization and has been very, very excited to vote for the first time in a presidential election. So I wanted to vote on the first day early voting was available this past Saturday. My daughter, who has been doing college online, because such is life now, had plans with her friends on Saturday, so we couldn't go the first day, so we went the second day. And my wife and my daughter and I stood in line for about a couple of hours before we could cast our vote. And it was very different from 2008. I think it's an even more important vote. It's an even more important election. But it didn't feel light and it didn't feel joyous. It felt kind of sober. And people in line looked somber too. I'm not going to exhort you all here to vote. I think you know that at this point. And you know that it's important to have a plan. And you know that it's important to get your friends to vote and your family members to vote and for making sure that they have plans. The last thing I'm going to leave you with is a memory that I have from before the 2016 election. Some days before election day in 2016, my youngest son, who was then 11, who had heard me use this phrase in speeches and in other contexts, asked me the question. He said, Daddy, is, uh, is America the greatest country on earth? And I didn't hesitate. And I responded, yeah, America is the greatest country on earth. And then he had a follow-up question, which was, Daddy, if Donald Trump gets elected, will we still be the greatest country on earth? And I said, without hesitation. And I looked him in the eye and I said, yes. And I repeated the sentence. I said, even if Donald Trump wins, America is great and the best country on earth. And he seemed satisfied by that. And I meant that. Now, he has not yet asked me that question this time around in the days leading up to the 2020 election. And if he asked me the question, if Donald Trump gets reelected, will America still be the best and greatest country on earth? I might hesitate to answer that question. And I'd like to think so. And I'd like to think that all the good people who listen here and who voted, even if their votes are not enough to replace Donald Trump and members of the press and brave politicians and activists and people who care about the values that are important in this country, I'd like to think that all of their combined efforts, even in the second Trump term, will keep this country as great as it has been in the past and true to its values and its standards and its finest traditions. But I'm not sure. I'm really not. I do have confidence that we'll get through it as people who love our country, no matter what happens after the election. But I am worried that the country will be fundamentally changed and not for the better. So it is my fervent hope and wish that when next I speak to you, from the basement of my home into my podcast microphone, that it will be to celebrate good news. Until then, hang in there. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Gary Kasparov. If you like what we do, Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music 
is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.